Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the very first episode of Faith Adelphia. This care-sponsored podcast will highlight issues that the youth are facing, and we will discuss other taboo topics. I am your host, Hamna Rub. For today's episode, inshallah, we will be speaking about mental health, which will be a two-part episode. Today, I have Dr. Salam, Sister Duria, and Sister Huma. being with me today. I'm really happy to have you all to start off this first episode. I really want to kick off this series speaking about a topic that isn't really discussed much in our community, but really affects everyone, not just the youth. But before we dive into our discussion today, could you three introduce yourselves and explain the type of work you do in the community? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Homa Raja. I am a mental health therapist, and I have worked in a variety of settings over the last several years. My primary for primary focus has been working with forensic, i.e. criminal populations, um, and in crisis and risk management, but I've kind of dabbled in a bunch of things over the last 10 years. All right. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. My name is Dr. Kareem Latif Salam. I'm a board-certified adult and child and adolescent psychiatrist. I run an adolescent unit um, in a hospital in Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, I'm a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry for Drexel University College of Medicine, and I'm a founding member of Global Health Psychiatry, which is a collection of African-American psychiatrists who publish mental health literature to address stigma as it applies to mental health and substance use conditions in communities of color. So delighted to be here, and I would like to thank CARE for this opportunity to participate in this podcast. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Doria Shamsi. Um, thank you so much, Hamna, for organizing this. Um, really appreciate it. I think it is sorely needed. Um, so I work as a behavior analyst. I'm actually a BCBA, which is an acronym for a board certified behavior analyst. And I work with people to understand and change malfunctioning behaviors. Um, so as a behaviorist, I try to understand the function of maladaptive behaviors, and I come up with replacement behaviors. And in trying to change behaviors, my focus is on an individualized plan, a plan catered towards a specific person using teaching, antecedents, and consequence strategies. Um, typically, uh, my clients are people who struggle with neurodiversities. And by neurodiversities, I mean people who struggle with, um, you know, it could be autism, could be ADHD, oppositional defiance, and what have you. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. <laughs> Um, so before we dive into talking about this issue of mental health and I mean, what it is, um, what is mental health? Because I feel like, you know, when people kind of think about it, they think more of, you know, depression, schizophrenia, um, you know, other sorts of, um, diseases, but from what you guys have studied and seen from your patients and clients, what is mental health? Um, so I actually think that 
nowadays, mental health is kind of just your overall state of well-being. Um, it's your emotional, your psychological, your social, even you know some of your physical well-being. Everything's kind of interconnected, and it's really how you cope with stressors, you know, everyday stressors or significant stressors, um, and how you essentially function in society. So that's kind of you know where where I see it being right now. I'd also like to add to that. Um, you want to you want to focus on your ability to function in various spheres as well, whether it be socially, academically, um, interpersonally. That's socially, um, and so that you can function at a level where you're able to meet all the various obligations in your life. Uh, and so, in the absence of an ability to function, or if there's an impairment in the ability to function that usually suggests a disorder. So functioning is critically important. For example, children are measured by their ability to function in school. Um, many adults we have, uh, you know, we may have uh, providing responsibilities. So our ability to function in a work environment is important and to meet our household obligations as well as those in the community. And, you know, I can just add, Hamna, I feel, you know, as, um, as a BCBA, um, my goal is always, is not to change somebody, is not to change somebody completely. I just want to make them into a better version of themselves, where they can be most productive and, and they can be functional in our community. So that's always my aim. Um, yeah. Definitely. Thank you so much. So when we speak about, you know, mental health, how does someone know that they're not doing well mentally? Like, what are the indicators? What are the, you know, symptoms? What are ways a person knows? Because I feel like, you know, a lot of us may not have that background or maybe parents or peers who may, you know, be supportive or, you know, cognizant about our well-being and that part of, that aspect of ourselves, if that makes sense. You know, some of our parents, they grew up kind of just pushing through their lives, you know, um, not really thinking about how they're doing themselves. So how can, you know, this next generation, I mean, all of us in general, kind of be aware of our mental well-being? So sure, again, I think the ability to function is critically important. Uh, and when you're unable to, uh, I mean, it shows, for example, you could lack the energy, motivation and drive to complete necessary tasks, whether it be school related, work related, or uh, you engage uh, socially in a way that's really toxic or uh, damaging or destructive to the extent that you're losing relationships, even important relationships. Or you may find your life spiraling out of control. And um, perhaps in the beginning, it's a slower process, but then there's an accumulation of losses in various aspects of your life, whether it be employment difficulties, whether it be family instability, whether it be legal entanglements. So again, a significant impairment in your ability to function that disrupts your ability to meet your obligations really suggests that there's a problem that ought to be explored. Also, when you think of the mind and you think of the brain, uh, these are kind of central governing features of a human being. And they, it's like the control and command center for uh, behaviors and physiology. And so when these things aren't working right, it could be quite detrimental um, 
you know, to a human being's ability to function. Yeah. And just to piggyback on that, I, I usually kind of just tell people that, you know, it's normal to feel emotions. It's normal to feel stress. It's normal to feel sad. It's normal to feel anxious. Um, but when those emotions start impacting your daily functioning, as Dr. Salam said, is when, you know, you might have more of an issue. It's when you might need extra help. So really it's kind of the impact on your daily functioning. Can you function, you know, with these symptoms? Can you cope? Those are the kind of things that I look at when someone needs maybe more help. Or, or, or I'm sorry, Daria, did you want to jump oh, in? No, I think you're saying it really well. Yeah. Or if you're ever considering um, maladaptive ways of coping. So whether it involves yeah. uh, dangerous behavior, behavior that's uh, danger uh, to yourself, whether it be self-injury, whether it be pondering, taking your own life, or um, you pose a danger to someone else, you, you become explosive and angry and destructive to those in your environment. Uh, and really, or you behave in a way that suggests you're divorced from reality and, and you're psychotic. Um, you know, perhaps responding to perceptual disturbances that others don't have access to, you know, those three things, imminent danger to self, others, and psychosis suggest that uh, you're, you're reaching the acute phase of an illness and uh, you may need help in the immediate term. So I want to address this from a neurodiversity's viewpoint, and I truly want to expound the narrative that no one holds any culpability for a disability. And it truly takes a village to raise and nurture any child with or without disabilities. And in terms of adaptive behaviors and behavioral health, I think it is very important to understand that all our behaviors reflect our thoughts and our emotions. And for us to display positive, functional, and socially appropriate behaviors, we need to align our thoughts and emotions as well. For example, we so often see jealousies and maladaptive behaviors um, manifesting, which truly are a reflection of our maladaptive thoughts and emotions. So understanding our feralities and our vulnerabilities, being introspective and self-reflective helps us with our behaviors. It would truly be conducive for us to understand our automatic negative thoughts and our defense mechanisms and start the trajectory onto healthy behaviors and a healthy life. Definitely, thank you. So, so I know some people may be sick of talking about COVID since it's like kind of the only thing that's been on the news for, I mean, months and months, but I think a lot of people have gone through their lives not really experiencing anxiety or depression, but you know, COVID hit and their whole lives kind of flipped up upside down. And now they're kind of finding themselves in a place where they they are like are in need of help. Um, but the difficulty is, you know, a lot of our cultures, you know, say the I'll speak for the South Asian culture, you know, it's very taboo in our community. Um, and for like the auto community and the African American community. So what why do you guys think there is a stigma? Because I'm, I'm that we have like, you know, three people of color on this panel, or four, including me, but you guys have definitely probably experienced this and you guys are in a field where there aren't many people that look like you or think like you. So how can we kind of change those minds in our communities who may be resistant to um, speaking about this topic or seeking out treatment? 
All right. So, I mean, in regards to COVID, um, you know, over the past several months, our life has essentially been threatened by something we can't see. Um, we've seen, you know, all kinds of emotions related to the existing situation, many of which are quite normal. People have anxiety, fear, confusion, um, anger, depression, you know, for a lot of people, the uncertainty is what's worrisome. People don't like the unknown. Um, so the uncertainty with finances or how bad it can be get or how badly we will be impacted can cause people to catastrophize um, and also feel overwhelmed. And then, you know, there's, there's concerns beyond that. There's concerns that, you know, some indiv individuals with particularly difficult experiences during this time can develop some sort of trauma or PTSD, um, which is particularly difficult for, for, for people who are already entering the situation already stressed or, you know, have high exposure to the traumatic experiences like first responders. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to add with all of that said, and, and I do say this all the time, you know, human beings are wired to be resilient. Um, we are wired to adapt successfully to challenges. So generally, a lot of people do recover well from adversity. And um, there is the other end of the spectrum, was an, which is an opportunity for post-traumatic growth. So some individuals may actually come away from this feeling stronger or functioning higher. So I don't ever want to you know, draw, I, I want to kind of give the realities of what people can experience, but I also want to have this caveat that there is this other end of this, and a lot of people do experience this growth as well. So I'll jump in if you don't mind. Um, COVID is a once a century event, right? So this global pandemic. Uh, so it's very, um, it's just not part of our everyday lives. I mean, I mean pre-COVID, we, we just, we never thought we would have to live in a world where we wore masks, where we didn't engage with each other physically, um, where we were so isolated from each other. Um, then uh, there are just so many buckets that COVID has a tremendously negative impact on. So number one, the biological bucket, uh, we're learning more about this virus as we're living through it. Uh, and there's uh, the, the course of the virus is very uncertain. One take home point is that uncertainty is a driver of anxiety. So number one, am I going to get it? If I get it, will my course be complicated? And uh, will my recovery be full and complete? We've heard about the phenomenon of the long haulers. So, so there, those are some of the biological pieces. Could it affect my central nervous system, my ability to think, to relate, what have you? Then there's the financial aspect. So if you're in a forward-facing job, uh, you know, whether it be a cashier or you're working in a restaurant or in a grocery store, then there are risks of infection. Uh, and then there's the anxiety of actually going to work because we are, you know, our, our financial obligations aren't going to change, right? Then uh, we have this unseen enemy that uh, interferes with our ability to relate with each other because we have to remain physically distant. So, uh, and we're social creatures, right? So we're meant to interact with each other and to, uh, in a physical way, especially with those we're connected to, right? And so COVID has really discouraged that. 
Uh, and then we have to erect these barriers for our own safety. Finally, add to that, um, you know, um, the ability to seek help, care, or treatment in this setting. For example, um, COVID has not really affected my work life significantly because I've gone into the hospital uh, every day I was scheduled to be there. Uh, but a, a, a more mundane example is you see me, I'm wearing this shirt now, but typically at work, I'm wearing scrubs. Pre-COVID, I wore, you know, shirt and tie, but COVID, and I guess we're moving, what are we, about 11 months, 10, 10 or 11 months now, I'm wearing scrubs. So just all these things we haven't thought of, it's really affected our lives in a pretty abrupt way, okay? Um, and it's caused us to be inventive and creative in how we address some of these challenges. So though we remain physically distant, it's important for us to remain socially connected by leveraging technology the way we are now. Also with the social isolation, some folks could really get into their own head uh, and they could suffer. And uh, there might actually be a need for treatment and again, the technology could be leveraged through telehealth and other mechanisms uh, where folks could get to care in the setting of COVID. But it's really undone, it's undone life as we knew it. Uh, and I'm not sure, I don't think, and I suspect life is not going to fully return to uh, where it was pre-COVID. And finally, the response to COVID in this country that, that is awash in resources is really deplorable. Uh, it's really, really sad, and it simply did not have to be this way. Uh, and of course, that that introduces politics and the like. Uh, but uh, overall, COVID has been a dismal experience in this country. Yeah, you, you make very good points, Dr. Salam and Hama. Um, Hamna, I can speak to it from a disability uh, perspective, maybe. Um, so what I have seen in the neurodiverse community um, is, there has been an added onus on parents and families to not only hold on to their jobs, do all the housework, but also provide, you know, a level of educational, social, emotional and therapeutic services to their children who are experiencing um, a lot of angst, a lot of anxieties on top of their disabilities. Um, so, and we, you know, we know from our research and our observations that our neurodiverse learners need a consistency of routine, schedule, they need advanced notice of change, they need predictability, they need structure. And there is a complete disruption of that, you know, with COVID-19. Um, so definitely anxiety is on the rise, not only with the clients I work with, but also within the, the family structure. Um, and, and, you know, access to therapy has also been disrupted. Um, and, you know, I did do um, some telehealth. I know Dr. Salam mentioned that um, with some of my clients. And to be honest, it did not work. Um, with some of my older kiddos, it did. But a lot of my younger kids, my, you know, my two-year-olds, my four-year-olds, it truly did not work. And I was, um, I was training the parents in the therapies and the parent training was going really well. Um, but, but it was really hard for the client to just sit there and you know, get the kind of behavioral um, ABA sort of therapy that I, um, um, that I do, um, that was really hard. 
So COVID-19 has been, and I wish we had a better, as Dr. Salam said, it really has been abysmal, the response to COVID-19. Yeah, I think you guys have really mentioned some really great points. Um, I think one really important concept that Dr. Salami mentioned was, you know, how there is a rise in anxiety. And just, you know, from those I've worked with or spoken with um, around my age, a lot of kids are really stressed about, you know, um, you know, they're in this stage in life where they're applying to colleges or graduating college, finding jobs, and um, they really are uncertain about their futures. And not only do we have that, but on top of that, you know, the, the political climate right now is just, you know, not helping. Um, we just finished an election not too long ago, but it's like that, even though the election's over, it doesn't mean that, you know, we kind of have a peace of mind, like I thought we would, you know, we just saw all those events that happened at the Capitol and, you know, that also affecting our mental health. Um, I feel like there's just so much piling on right now. And I kind of have difficulty kind of thinking, you know, what kind of coping mechanisms or what things could people do to kind of cope through this time? Because I mean, as you all probably know, um, you know, access to therapy, whether it's telehealth or in person is not really accessible for all people. It's very expensive for many people. People don't have insurance, especially in the Muslim community. It's not very, you know, it's not very common um, or I mean, not, not very common, but that, you know, some people might not have it. So, you know, those who may need therapy cannot access it or, you know, medications. Um, so what are some coping mechanisms that you guys tell your patients or clients to kind of think to kind of help them cope through this time? And also, Hamna, if I can add, there's this whole um, stigmatization, mm -hmm. um, you know, around getting therapy, around admitting to the fact that there is a mental health issue, there is a behavioral health issue, there is a child who has a neurodiversity, we are forever trying to hide these things, and, and sort of present this facade to the world. So I think that's also something that is implicit, um, you know, within this conversation. And I'll let um, Dr. Salam or Homa start with the coping mechanisms. So just with the, with, to piggyback on, on the stigma, um, and then I'll get into coping mechanisms, but I think in general, people just have a lack of understanding about mental health overall. Um, you know, things like what's included in it, what is it basically, what causes it, what the symptoms are, how do you cope, et cetera. Um, they're skeptical of the science, they're skeptical of the mental health professionals, um, and then many people also believe that other people should just be able to just deal and control their symptoms, behaviors, like they put ownership on the individual, like you should be able to control this or manage this. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the mind is unknown. And we've talked about this unknown with COVID, that there's this concept of the unknown. A lot of it's unknown, which scares people. And because of that, many people may not believe that it's a real Ill illness. They might just think it's in your head. Um, and then there's also this fear of being different. So I think, you know, there is this very real stigma. And then I don't know, Dr. Slum, do you want to talk about stigma or do you want me to get into just coping skills and stuff? No, I was going to address just some, some basic rules in terms of, of, of coping in the setting of COVID. Uh, so it's important to focus on what you could do in the setting of COVID that's deprived us of so much, right? So simple things like a schedule, keeping a schedule, set wake time, uh, set bedtime. Uh, why a schedule is largely related to a routine. 
this is critically important for young people as well, right? And that's something you could hold on to, and that's something you have control and mastery over despite COVID, right? Also, COVID has us spending more time indoors, uh, and sometimes there's an encroachment on our privacy. So it's important to remember you can get outside and get some fresh air, remain physically distant. Uh, if you're outside of your home base pod, uh, you know, wear your mask if you need to. But I know once I'm done on this, uh, this Zoom, my wife and I are going for a walk. And I'm, I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to that. Right. And then just the simple act of the sun, the sunlight hitting your skin and the creation of vitamin D and the elevation of mood. So those are really simple things. Right. Yeah. And, and also COVID has presented us with an opportunity. It's given us more time to do things that we've put off. So if you're a checklist oriented person, there was a book you wanted to read. There was a project you wanted to tackle. You could make use of this time to get more things done. Right. And then finally, you can absolutely not discount this considering that the organization that uh, that sponsored this podcast care. I feel like as Muslims, we have an advantage. So the schedule is built in around Salat, right? Five times a day at prescribed times. And, you know, and I find that my soul is actually cleansed when I pray. And so I literally feel the stress going from me to almighty God, Allah, the creator of all, uh, whose power is just limitless. And I don't have to carry that anymore. So my mind is clear, my soul is cleansed, and I feel at ease. And then it fortifies my armor so that when I have to leave the home and go to work and deal with other folks' pain and broken lives, I'm equipped to do that. So uh, my Al-Islam is really, it, it's, the advantages are built in. And I find that as I drift away from that, I become more and more stressed. Now for everyone, their Al-Islam may not affect them that way. So I'm just speaking from, from personal experience, but I've, ha I've, had, I've encountered many believers who've had a similar experience. And I can add to that. I think um, you made very good points, both of you. Um, for me, I think I would, I would um, advise people to understand for everybody is an individual. We all have our unique coping mechanisms. So this is a good time for us to sort of understand, you know, what resonates with us, what resonates with me, how will I cope in this situation? What brings my anxiety down? And everybody will have, you know, different divergent answers. So sort of understand that, that we are all unique um, and then sort of self-reflect, understand um, you know, what, what will give me, as Dr. Salam said, for so many people, it is religion, um, it is meditation, it is saying the dua, it is like, for me, if I don't exercise, I always tell my husband, if I don't exercise, my, my head just doesn't work well. That's just how I'm wired. Um, and then again, um, and again, you know, for my neurodiverse population, um, definitely the routine, the schedule, um, you know, the advanced notice of change, all those things have to be communicated. So I always advise my parents to have, you know, the schedules to still 
um, transfer some of the skills that they were be, that were being used in the school environment into the home environment to have a token economy, um, to have a response cost system. So all these different strategies can definitely be of use to us, um, you know, in COVID-19 times as well. But my advice would be to really understand, you know, what resonates with you, with each individual. Um, yeah. And do that, do that consistently, be consistent. That's so important. And from just like a cognitive behavioral um, standpoint and with working with adults. Um, so what Daria said is very important, which is like self-monitoring skills, um, self-regulations of your emotions, behaviors, attentions, thoughts. It's important for adults and children. Um, and it's an important aspect in managing your stress, your relationships with other people. So just, you know, pay attention to how you're doing and how you regulate what you're feeling. Um, there's various coping techniques that you, adults can use like mindfulness, which is, you know, sit with your feelings of discomfort rather than trying to suppress or analyze themselves, so, um, analyze these feelings. You can do like slow belly or diaphragmatic breathing, which if you Google this stuff or if you kind of look into this stuff, there's plenty of, you know, examples on how to do this. But, you know, breathing techniques, meditation, um, grounding, which is, a coping strategy that connects you to something in the present moment. So like you would take thing, note of things around you, you know, your sight, smell, something that you feel, your breath, whatever it is. Um, I always tell people, be realistic, focus on the things that you can personally control. We can't really control a lot of what's going on with this pandemic. So focus on the things that you can create boundaries, you know, cope with each day's stressors as they come. And I think what's really, really important, because there's a lot of these things, you know, Dr. Slam has mentioned stay connected. There's things like you can do journaling, which is, you know, writing down what's causing you distress. There's a lot of various techniques that you can use, but I think probably the most important thing for me is to know yourself. So for some people thinking of the worst possible outcome can create undue stress. And for people who, who do catastrophize, who do do these things, turn it off, you know, don't look at the media, don't read the news, don't, Kind of focus on the negatives if that's just the type of person you are and if you're not um you will you will know that about yourself so one of the things i always kind of emphasize with patients is you know yourself you know how you can handle things you know how you can cope with things you know where your thoughts go so you know focus on that and then kind of figure out how to deal with the situations around you yeah, and I always reference, I just thought of this, I always reference this one um, study that Harvard University um, undertook. It was a longitudinal study that they conducted for 75 years. And I think they had like 700 participants. And the biggest determinant of happiness was human connections and how it was so protective for our brain and our body. So absolutely in times of COVID, I think Dr. Salam also mentioned this, in times of COVID-19, it is hard to be, you know, meeting people face to face, but we can absolutely make an effort to, you know, have those connections, to continue to talk to people, listen to them, um, be there for them um, and empathize with them. You know, all these different things will provide us with solace and comfort um, and peace. And, and to, to Duria's point, uh, that social connection is critical. There's a prediction that as people live longer with advances in medicine and with folks putting a, a, a premium on self-care and exercise and longevity, that there will be an epidemic of loneliness mm -hmm. because you have folks who will live so long that 
their peer members of their peer group will pass away and no one will be alive who remembered them by their first name. So, uh, and uh, you've heard, we've all heard the story of, uh, you know, a spouse passes away and then the remaining spouse is, you know, they pass away in less than a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, following the, the death of, of the initial spouse. So that social connection is really, really important. It's healthy for brain development uh, in all uh, stages of the life cycle. So um, you cannot overemphasize that. Now, shifting towards stigma as it applies to mental health and substance use problems, I think in many communities, it, it, whether it be the South Asian community, whether it be the African-American community or communities of color writ large, uh, uh, stigma with mental health, there's, so there's a vulnerability you have to admit to if you have insight into your mental health issues. Also, uh, there's this, this misconception of uh, a mental health problem being a reflection of some uh, moral shortcoming, some transgression, uh, some, you know, just some horrible imperfection versus uh, a part of the mind or brain that's just simply not functioning properly, right? Uh, and, and, you know, clinical problems, they have a root cause. And in many instances, not every instance, that root cause is discoverable and it can be addressed with various treatment modalities. So, uh, you know, are you going to engage in problem solving or not? The other thing too is as Muslims, we know that, you know, we are among Allah's finest creation, the human being, but only Allah is perfect and we are not. Uh, and so, you know, shame on you for judging another human being for being imperfect, right? The other thing too is, if you want to be supportive of a loved one who's having mental health issues, uh, and it's obvious, you know, it shows itself in their behavior and their um, uh, less than ideal functioning, volunteer to accompany them or help them on their journey to, to connect to care. Be, a, be an active support in that way. But again, uh, admitting to a mental health condition uh, takes a certain level of vulnerability uh, and owning up to an imperfection. And we all have them. We absolutely all have them. Uh, and so, or is this uh, part of some weakness or some character flaw? Uh, and, and these are all, you know, myths that have to be addressed and folks have to be brought to care because, you know, one of, one of the disastrous outcomes of, untreated uh, mental illness is someone could be harmful to themselves or others. So, um, and those are very real concerns. And once someone does that, you know, there, there are no do-overs, right? And everyone will say, well, well, what could I have done? And you had every opportunity to help and support them. So who wants to live with that? Who wants to live with that amount of guilt? So. Yeah, that's, those are such good points. And I think um, piggybacking on what Dr. Salam said, I think the stigmatizing stereotypes have been perpetuated for such a long time. Um, 
you know, historically, if you look at the mental health um, issues, um, we had all these pseudo-scientific explanations that were given, which were considered in those times to be scientific. Like, for example, again, from a neurodiversity point of view, there was this paradigm that was reinforced with autism about refrigerator mothers, which is, it's mind-boggling, but all the scientists completely adhered to it, um, which said that the mothers... Um, of children with autism were so cold. That's why the kids got autism. It's it's mind boggling at this time. And um, it, it reeks of misogyny as well. That's such a good point as well, Dr. Salam, that it was only the mothers who were classified <laughs> as, you know, the refrigerator mothers. Mm -hmm. and, and scientists in those days actually, you know, abided by these, these theories. So um, well, look, yeah. look at look take a look at the demographics of those scientists at that yeah, time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but and you know even now in in modern day you know uh, in South Asia and stuff I've still seen you know people talk about um, mental health issues or neurodiversities or disabilities as as punishment from God as as saying that there's something they're self inflicted. Um, that the behaviors are unpredictable and they're um, dangerous. There's so many derogatory terms that are still used in, you know, in this day and age. It's, it's again, mind boggling. And I feel media also perpetuates these stereotypes by framing these issues as dangerous and disruptive. Um, and, it, and the other thing that I just sort of want to speak to, you know, there's this aspect of self-stigma, which, which is what is internalized by the mental health sufferer so they think they're not good enough because they're sort of imbibing everything from around them. Um, and they're listening to the voices of the people around them. And it is their perceptions of discrimination, which in turn creates um, feelings of shame and leads to poor treatment outcomes. Um, so I think we have to be very cognizant um, of how we deal with these issues and how we can destigmatize um, the mental health and behavioral issues. Thank you, Sister Duria, for that point. Um, I will stop here and inshallah, we will come back very soon to kind of finish up our thoughts. Um, to everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at CarePhilly and please like us up on Facebook at CarePhiladelphia. Inshallah, we will be back next month with a new episode. Assalamu alaikum.